Welcome to episode 5 of the Flight Pass podcast. Tonight we have two disc golfers on the show, Stu McKissick and Chris Hartman, both professionals and have joined together to form the course design company In Design. We talked to them about their careers and the thoughts and factors you need to take into consideration when designing a disc golf course. Hi, I'm Clive Lovett, and again, I'm with my partner in crime, Carrie Neal. Hi, Carrie, and let's go straight to the tea pad. What have you been up to the past, uh, well, week or a couple of weeks since the last podcast? Uh, well, I have started wrapping Christmas presents <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, getting my list ready for, you know, shopping list for Christmas season and Christmas Day and Christmas Eve and what we're going to have for appies and meals and that's I, I love to cook and I love to grocery shop I know that probably makes some people cringe about the grocery shopping part but yeah and other than that uh getting um getting my my head out of the clouds about announcing the crush coming to Kamloops the women's b oh, yeah. coming to Kamloops in August awesome. yeah so that's kind of consumed my past week was uh getting that organized and ready to announce and uh getting my Christmas game on and lots of Hallmark movies, of course. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that, that, that's why I have this room downstairs. So that's I don't, funny. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, Craig always tells me, he's like, oh, let me guess. He says it's going to be a librarian whose husband died two years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to meet the, the, the guy who's coming home to take over the Christmas tree farm. And they're going to fall in love. And yeah. Yeah. So or, or, the, happy. or the other way around. The, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The, the you know wife that died in a car accident and he you know and he's got a daughter and his daughter's trying to you know hook him up yeah with the, you know, anyway yep. yeah yep. It, it's just like any hallmark movie but with snow that's right yeah <laughs> yeah i'm actually getting a little bit of the christmas spirit because it is i mean it's chucking chucking it down out there right now so but it's not like that first snow where we were just sliding all over the place in our cars yeah. but because of the christmas secret santa i've been thinking about that and actually at work today, I was asking a few people, hey, on the 17th, you know, I know it's a week before Christmas. Do you want to come over for a couple of drinks? Um, so getting into that aspect. But as far as buying Christmas presents, it's like oh, that happens like on the 23rd of December, doesn't it? Sometimes on the 24th. I'm that person literally in my bedroom. I have a wall where I put up like a bag for my daughter, a bag for Craig, my mom my dad, my, my mother-in-law, and I go throughout the year, I listen for hints and I buy things and they get dropped in the bag. So I'm uh -huh. literally Christmas shopping from about April forward. Well, I, I definitely listen to what, you know, well, my daughter wants everything. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, you know, I listen to what people want, but I don't buy it. I go, okay, I've got that in my mind, you know, or I see something and I go, oh, that'd be a really good Christmas present for so-and-so, but I don't yeah. buy you know, like, um, I just, and I have a hard time. I don't buy anything big. Like I do stocking stuffers and little gifts because I'm not, a, I, I'm not a good surprise keeper. I love to give. Yeah. So if I have it too soon, I'm like, Oh, you know what? It's, it's sunny and it's Saturday. You need this. Like I can't help myself. So <laughs> yeah. I try to keep the big stuff till like October, November, then I wrap it right away and then I can't give it. So cool. And as you said, you've got the Kamloops crush, which is a, tournament for female players what date is that june sometime 
No, that's August oh, 12th August, and 13th. August 12th, 13th. And that has yeah. that is on Facebook. And we'll post it to the Flight Paths Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah. We'll and, the stories. Yeah. And I, as I cannot play in that, I will be volunteering. Yay. I, that's what I'm hoping because, yeah. you know, the inaugural one was in Cranbrook this year. And uh, we had uh, scorekeepers and we had uh, spotters and volunteers running the raffles and it was amazing it was all the men from the club and spouses helping out and it was great we had as many men out there if not more than we had women and so supportive and I know that the Kamloops Disc Golf Club is like that so and I've already had people dropping notes into my dms and texting me being like I'll be there I'm gonna book it off work what do you need me to do and I'm like holy (laughs) I'm overwhelmed already with like support and uh it's it's fantastic. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it'll be it'll yeah. be a fun event, and the Flight Path podcast will be there in some form, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Anything else? Have you been throwing any distance it snowed? I have not, Clive, because I'm. <laughs> I don't. I don't like to play in the snow. I don't like to bundle up. I don't like to be cold. I've hurt my shoulders before in in cold weather, not being warmed up enough or being yeah. able to stay warm. So, um. No, you know, I've been in the garage a little bit throwing, but uh, I haven't. I'm looking forward to putting, though. Okanagan Disc Supply has uh, drop-in putting coming up here. I think yeah. it starts tomorrow, Wednesday, right? The drop-in and then the league starts in the new year, and it's in yeah. a school gym, so it's not as though um, Okanagan Disc Supply had a warehouse next door. It'll certainly be warmer than the warehouse. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'll be going up there about an hour earlier with Dan... Justin and Paulo, because we are, we've called ourselves the Kamloops Stokely Slingers. Nice. Because the four of us are doing the Scott Stokely course. The first video dropped today. I haven't watched it yet. So it'll be interesting to see what we're supposed to do until the next video drops. And whatever it is, we'll be doing it tomorrow and throwing discs into nets and perfect. Yeah, and trying I to get, get the I'm, I'm excited to follow this. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And talking about snow, I'm not, I'm, as you know, I'm a pretty fair weather player. Yeah. Um, but I did go out for the club championship and it had snowed or it was cold, cold, but it turned out to be a really nice day. And then the Kamloops Disc Golf Club had the Frozen Rose Doubles Tournament yes. um, up at Rose Hill. And I woke up in the morning and it was cold. It wasn't <laughs> windy, but it was like minus six or minus seven. And I'm going, oh. Because if the wind picks up, it'll be like minus 15 to 20 up at Rose Hill. Let's just clarify that's Celsius, if any of our American friends are listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I had Justin with my partner, and we went up there, and we were playing in the intermediate division. Did you guys have a name, a team name? Yes, we did. We had the best team name. We were the Hucking Fooligans. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think um, it was the most imaginative one. I would like to have got T-shirts printed up maybe for next year. Yes. But, um, yeah, it was some kind of logo on there. But, yeah, the, yeah, the Hucking Fooligans, we thought it was kind of humorous. Um, I love it. But we got up there, and it was probably about minus two, minus three. I mean, I had, like, a base layer on, then a pair of pants on, and then a shell over the top, and then I had a, um, a T-shirt, a long-sleeve shirt, and a, I don't know, a hoodie and a jacket. So I had four layers. Holy. But they weren't heavy layers. But Smart. quite quite after after about nine holes, it was warm. And it was kind of that feeling where you can take the jacket off 
But if you take it off, then straight away the wind hits you and you put it back on again. Oh, yep. the, in fact, there wasn't much wind at all. Maybe the just the coldness in the air because it 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 would turned out to be a beautiful day. Yeah, but, the sun came out that afternoon and it, it warmed right up, like the air warmed up. Yeah, and it was four hours of walking, basically in the bush, in snow. <laughs> you know, so my uh, my oh my legs some places i won't tell you hurt the following morning um you know if i just sat down and seized up but it was interesting because you have to slow down your run up so you, you know, you're throwing on a say a 300 foot hole yep. and your approach is slowed down and you think if i well if i slow it down I need a disc that'll go there further. So in your head, you're thinking, well, maybe I need a nine-speed disc instead of a seven-speed disc, which is the opposite thinking. Yeah. Um, so there's that in your head. And then, um, yeah, it was, that, that was just interesting to get get through that, you know, if you're going to take a nine-speed disc and slow down, that disc is, doesn't matter what it is, it's just going to go left on you. Well, you've got a, it's a good, winter golf is a really good opportunity to engage your core more. And definitely, if you, if you take a look at a lot of the pros, they don't run up in the tee box. Yeah. You know, they take a couple steps. That, well, yeah, that's what I meant, but by yeah. the run up, it was, yeah. Um, and they plant and it's just all like core, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And so many people think they need to rely on a super fast run up yeah. or a really aggressive run up. So, yeah. So yeah. that, that was cool. And then Justin and I, we were playing with Dan and Paulo, who are, you know, doing the Stokely course with us. Yep. And um, I have to say, you know, after Dan's little shot at me, you know, uh, in the the fifty year old division there, um, <laughs> we was we were seven under after the first eighteen, and they were only four under. So um, sorry, Dan. Don't go too hard on him. He's our sponsor. I know. I was just thinking <laughs> that as well. And then we went out on the second round. And we shot eight under, and they, I forgot what they shot, but but yeah, um, I'm sure they'll want to beat us next time. But it was a lot of fun playing with those guys. Awesome. That, yeah, we had a lot of good laughs and um, just fun and some and some good disc golf. The cool thing was, um, you know, and what you need in doubles is when one of you throws poorly, the other needs to throw well. Yep. You know, and that's what happened with Justin and I on that first round. Um, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. It's, it's so, not a good day when you both aren't throwing well. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. And in the snow and in the cold, it's hard to get out of that mindset yeah. if it starts to go wrong. So I would do it again. Excellent. Unless it's minus, well, minus 30 <laughs> outside. You know, so. Well, now you're making me feel bad that I didn't go play. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I think it was because the weather was so good. I mean, it could have easily gone up there and just after the first round said, I'm going home, you know, because yep. the weather's just ridiculously cold. But a lot of fun, and I encourage people to go out there on a good day, go and play some disc golf, but keep an eye on where your disc goes. I did lose two discs. Oh. Um, one and on keep an eye on your footing, too. It yeah. can get icy out there if yeah. too many people walk on the same spot. Short par five, a pink disc. Uh, it was number five on Rose Hill, and I just left it short, in the, yep. and I, we couldn't find it. So I'm sure that one will turn up. In the um, spring. Because now the it's spring. snowing again. Yeah. <laughs> or someone will be searching for theirs and they'll uh, yep. they'll find mine. And then on number three, which has a big, huge ravine to the left. Yes. We were talking about it and I talked myself into throwing it. And it just went high and left and dropped down. I mean, it didn't even hit the trees. It just dropped down the bottom. And oh. it, was, it was an old beat-up escape. 
and I yeah. and I I have it was a red one because it was easier easier to find a snow my white one I left at home, but Perfect. I we both went well we all looked at it and said someone will find that for me. We, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm two discs down light in my bag right now, but that's fine because I won't be going outside to play. I don't think until the spring now. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, and thus I'm planning on Arizona, um, in February. So, so cool. I'll play some golf on there. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, anything coming up for locals in or just the putting the putting and the indoor so if you're in Kamloops then um, go up to Summit Elementary at seven o'clock on Wednesdays and putt there we're going to have a net up there so people can throw discs into a net if they want to and I believe we're going to set up a camera so you can record yourself or you know basically record yourself slow-mo and Dan, yep. Dan also has a radar gun as well. You bet. Uh, just a little tidbit is you have to be a club member for insurance purposes. Yeah. So you can hit up kdgc.com and get all the details there. And it is time to renew those KDGC memberships and those PDGA memberships for next year. It sure year. is. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's all I have for this, this. Yeah episode so let's go to well let's let's go to the circle with our guests chris and Stu. in the circle this evening we have with us bc disc golfers and indesign business owners chris hartman and Stu mckislick good evening guys oh good evening carrie and clive thanks for giving up your time so you're both disc golfers and although this is audio stuart has his innova disc golf shirt on you're both I guess sponsored would that be the right word by Innova? Yes. So if you can both give us a kind of a start with Chris, the kind of Cole's notes of how you came to be in disc golf, or what kept you in it, and this, you know, now you're sponsored by Innova. Yeah, I think um, it goes back to uh, as a kid, really growing up in Prince George, and my, my dad and I used to go down to what was then Fort George Park, now lately Tanay. Uh, memorial park and we used to kick a soccer ball around and throw a frisbee for hours and uh, he used to throw hyzers and anhyzers and everything was curving whether it was a foot or whether it was a soccer ball or a frisbee everything was curving and so we did that several summers in a row and that just began i think my love for the flight of a disc uh, we did a little bit of freestyle uh, as well um and then our first i was thinking about this yesterday the the very first course design effort if you want to call it that was in the late 80s at a family reunion where we had about 40 people and somehow uh, had the idea, must have read about it or heard it somewhere uh, about Frisbee golf and we set up a course at a family reunion. Once uh, I didn't really play a lot of disc golf until uh, we had a family cottage over on Pender Island and started playing the Pender Island course when we were over there. Um, I was involved with other sports and so it wasn't until I stopped um, coaching my sons in other sports that then I looked around to see what do I want to do next and uh, disc golf was uh, right in the backyard there and I started thinking maybe this is something that I'd like to take on and, and challenge myself and see uh, see what we can do. Cool so what kept you going? I mean it was I mean there must be a passion for the game now. Yeah, there's. Uh, I've always had a passion for some sport, um, and it just kind of goes from one to the next. And I think part of it is just the challenge with any of the sports, just to see, you know, how far can you get? How 
how can you how far can you take your skills and it's really a challenge against that goal more than i think anything else um yes it's nice to win the audit event and and uh, you know have a good rating and all those things but uh, i think for me it's it's really a challenge to see what's possible um and uh, so i tend to get pretty passionate about those things when i start and the sport itself has grown on me. Uh, I just see what it is and what it prov can provide to our uh, communities. And you see the growth of it now. And I think it's just really exciting. And uh, you just very seldom ever see grumpy people out on a disc golf course. So um, it's a pretty good place to be. And you're out in the outdoors, getting a little bit of exercise. Uh, and, uh, the, and the challenge is still there. It's a sport that has so much creativity uh, involved. So it seems like you're never going to master it. You're just always trying new things, which is which keeps it interesting for me. Cool. And, and Stuart? Yeah. You know, it's funny, Chris, uh, this is going to be really unique for me in that he was already designing course in the late 1980 and I was, I was still in the womb. So, <laughs> Thanks uh, Stu. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, um, I grew up in a Northern town in British Columbia, like Chris did, uh, much further West and much smaller. You know, it's when he was telling that story, remind me of, I think the first time I probably played some sort of version of, of Frisbee or disc golf was at uh, Grouchy's beach or the picnic, uh, beach in Terrace. And we, uh, we would say, hey, go around that picnic shelter, hit that tree, and and that it's because we were golfers. So we just sort of came up. We maybe even we were so young we thought we invented the sport. Imagine that. But I don't think that was the case. And it formal introduction was there was a course installed, nine hole course here in Mission BC. Driving home one day, I saw this this, you know, metal contraption. And I just inherently knew that it was a disc golf basket. Like I don't know how I knew it. I've never seen one before in my life. I was like, I think that's a disc golf basket. And uh, we went, turn around, we literally drove right down to the, the dollar store, bought dog Frisbees, and went right out onto the course. And we couldn't throw these things but 20, 25 feet at the most. It was terrible. They would Anheuser and Heiser and flip upside down in the same throw. You know, it was just like not good stuff. <laughs> but we ended up uh, running into a guy pulling a kid on a wagon and playing disc golf with and he threw a disc and I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I ran across the park. I'm like, like the competitive nature of myself. Like, I can't do that. How did you just do that? And he handed, he put, he put a, the first disc in my hand and I threw it once and I wasn't a great throw, but it went way further than the dog Frisbee went. And, and that started a birthday gift for like a starter set. And then the, you know, you know how it goes from there. The obsession yeah. just gets a hold of you and then you start playing. That, that's cool. And from there now you're both playing somewhat competitively yeah yeah I yeah we both uh, yeah we we both travel around quite a bit we play a lot of rounds together and uh, travel had been fortunate enough to travel to some pretty good events in, in the region and into the u.s and even a little bit in europe and uh, still um, kind of push each other i think at times too uh, and so yeah still very involved so what's the the, the thing that if you look back and go, wow, that was a great moment, what would that be for you, Stuart? Well, competitively, it easily has to be winning the MP40 division at the Las Vegas Challenge right before, right as COVID was striking in February. Yeah. And uh, went to a one-hole playoff with Steve Rico and ended up winning on the first hole with a birdie. Um, we won't talk about what happened on the 
the you know 54th hole that caused the playoff <laughs> but, <laughs> um yeah that was my the number the probably the biggest uh the biggest competitive milestone and then you know i think probably if, if we're being honest and you know uh, a little bit of a loving but you know outside of competitiveness i probably you know meeting chris as a friend and now starting a business together and all that stuff like you just think about i'm not even sure actually you know what i do re- let me regale you the first story first time i met chris hartman uh-huh. centennial park hole one which is i thought at the time the most unbirdieable disc golf hole in the planet because you just couldn't throw it that far that low and get anywhere near it you know as your beginner you don't have any idea about how far a disc can really travel and all of a sudden this guy comes up and I'm on the ninth hole and they kind of go side by side and he throws it and it hits the pole. And I was like, who's this guy? And how is he doing that? So anyways, uh, um, that was the first time I ever uh, saw who he was and what he did. And then, you know, we just became great friends. So that's, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty great non-competitive moment. Yeah. I, I had an experience like that. I was out just golfing with Kerry. Uh, I don't know whether you've been played MacArthur Island in Kamloops here. But on hole number five, and it was in, I mean, the willows were pretty full. And we're playing, we're on number four, uh, number five, and Andrew Henderson jogs yeah. up. And he goes, I'm playing a quick round. Oh, yeah, hi, Kerry. He introduced him to Kerry. And, and he just, it, I don't think it went te- more than 10 feet off the ground, went right down the alley and just basically skidded 30 feet next to the pin. And I'm going, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can appreciate it until you see it in person. No, it's true. Yeah. And you don't truly fall in love with the flight of the disc until you see a perfectly thrown disc like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And once you do, you're hooked. You're hooked. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you guys. They say never get into business with family or friends. So um, I know you both and you're both super passionate about the sport and super giving to the sport. Um, what what makes it work as friends before we get into InDesign and stuff how did you guys know it would work i think it's just through over time um you know Stu and i started getting involved um, together and just helping out with uh, temporary courses for the bc open down here uh and you just start talking about it and you start to develop a, a passion and you realize somebody else um is actually thinking about you know, the courses and what it means and how people are throwing and, and the balance and all the different factors that go into, you know, and, and only a, a you know fraction of probably what we think about today. But um, it was just something that we both were willing to put time in and there was an excitement there. And, and I think it just grows. You just start comparing notes and you start talking about these things. Um, and then, uh, you know, then we had the opportunity to uh, f- be part of a society that was formed that then got to work and build and design Raptors Knoll. And, and uh, that was, I think that was where we really solidified, hey, there's, you know, there's something that we can do here together. We weren't sure at the time what that would all look like. Um, but it was, it was a passion that we both had. Um, we, we don't always, you know, see things exactly the same way, which is, you know, I think part of the the strength of working together uh, is that you sometimes, you know, when we were working in Raptors, there were times where we both had complete, literally opposite ideas about a certain part of the course um, and ended up to have it coming up with a third idea that was probably better than the either idea we either had at the beginning. So um, 
for me, it's just, you know, when it's, it's like a friendship, right? Any kind of friendship that it's based on, on common um, ideas and common interests. And yeah, we both played and we, we knew we had that interest. But when we started thinking about the you know, actually courses, um, Stu has quite a, a significant background in golf. I played a lot, not to the same level. Um, and I always thought about how cool it would be to design, you know, a golf course. And, and there's no real chance of doing that. But then along comes disc golf and somebody else who's kind of thinking along the same lines and and so you know we just started thinking about it started getting involved in more things together and uh started noticing more and more of a need um out there and uh, thought hey why don't we just give this a try and and see what happens raptors knoll was such a such a galvanizing project from a lot of perspectives but from the design side i think it was there were things that i really wanted to do there that Chris wasn't sold on. And there were things Chris really wanted to do there that I wasn't necessarily sold on. And then you sort of came up with this, maybe sometimes third option. And sometimes it was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's try that. And we might play it a second or do it, whatever. But when you sit down and you then look at the sum of the whole, you look and say, man, Chris's ideas really made a, uh, a, a much better impact on this. And I would assume it would be the other way around. There's, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, I really didn't think that was going to work. But, man, that was a good idea now looking at it hindsight. And then you go, man, that's a good cooperative working shape. And if, and if we're being honest, there are times where we sit down and we say, hey, we really need to communicate here. Or, you know, that communication factor of where we're at and what we're doing and how it all works is uh, such an important part of the process. After you finished designing Raptors Knoll, have there been any changes? Did you go back and say after a year or two and say, you know, that wasn't quite right. Maybe we should change things. Chris, in year one, or the sec the first year of being open, we changed three or four pins. We like a whole one, we moved it 10 feet or something. Right. Yeah. And we did yeah. that to make it just a half a stroke harder by moving. It's amazing what moving a basket 10 feet will do. And we made adjustments to, I want to say four or five different holes there. And then now we're considering two new tee pads, which are, I think, far beyond the consideration factor, but they're they're kind of going to happen. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's we, you know, you look at how people play the course as well, um, you know, and you look at scoring on the holes and and uh, you make some adjustments. Some some changes have been made where there's just been opportunities after it opened to say, hey, let's you know do something with, you know, this green um, or, you know, this particular area or, you know, in one area was, you know, you, you get spots that are really wet in the winter. So, you know, we've played around with maybe putting something in a little bit of a different different place or even a temporary basket in a temporary place, just as you learn more about the people playing it and how the course is holding up. Um, so I think it's, it's a bit of a, an iteration still, we're still looking at ideas and considering things, uh, ways to make it even a little bit better. Now, is it correct? You guys uh, did John Houck's design class. He went down to the States Obviously, um, mad respect for him. He designed Rose Hill East up here. Um, the city brought him in, and that was his design. And he helped a little bit with Logan Lake. And I'd, I'd love to hear what you took away from that and why John Houck, what, what inspired you guys to go that route of yeah. uh, course design? Yeah, I think for 
for both of us, once we started seriously considering that we wanted to get involved more in design um, and and possibly building new courses, you kind of look around and say, what do we what do we need to do um, to help build our knowledge base? And and uh, so um, John had a I think it was in. Ohio or Illinois or something there was a one of his workshops came up and we we just thought like it just made sense for us to invest in you know and listening to John and hearing you know his ideas and and uh, just invest in ourselves that way you know along with lots of reading and, and other things but that was just an obvious thing to do if we're gonna if we're gonna really take this seriously um, we don't want to just go in and just kind of wing it based on what we know uh, we want to go in and and we want to we want to learn how to do this and and you might as well listen to somebody who's been doing it for a long time and has done lots of courses so um, that would seem kind of an obvious thing to do. Like he still is the biggest name, I would say, in course design, right? So if you have the opportunity to learn, then why why would you not? I, I think he, uh, um, it was in Dayton, Ohio. And I just, I happened to be in the area and Chris flew down and we, yeah, we went and did it. Was it a two-day seminar, Chris, or one? I think it was two for sure, yeah. yeah. I just remember it's the only time I've ever drank a cup of coffee because we it was a late late night getting in there, <laughs> and I actually drank coffee on that first day because it was I was I just remember that so I'll always remember that day. It's the only cup of coffee I've ever had. <laughs> you mentioned Dayton, Ohio. I actually flew into Dayton to go to Newark, Ohio, to take courses on how to build and repair golf clubs, and there was a course on course design which I didn't take, but ever since then it's been like. Well, no, as a golfer, I'd love to design a golf course one day or have a voice. And, and obviously that, that doesn't happen because you have to have a name and, you know, and money. And so now, you know, kind of this is where I'm going to kind of geek out on you guys because I want to know what goes into designing a disc golf course. So I have this piece of land and it's got trees on it and it's got, you know, I know 30, 50 acres, whatever it is. And I come to you guys and I say, I want to build a course. What's the first question you got to ask me? And of course, what do you mean? What by what kind of course? Well, I mean, I think it's important to know immediately what the client wants. You know, we'll field calls from nine hole beginner courses to 18 yeah. hole championship courses. And okay. some of the clients that we talk to are very forthright and saying they want what's the best course in the area. Yep. We want to be better than that. And and then you have to have a real honest conversation about whether the land they're showing you is viable for that level of design. But yeah, what kind of course do you want? Do you want something that's, you know, going to bring tourist attraction? Do you want something that's going to have campers there and they're going to play with their kids? Yeah. Do you want something that's going to be <clears throat> enjoyable? Do you want to hold competitive events? There's just so much more to disc golf than the average client would say, well, no, I just want a disc golf course. You sort of educate them on what the span of that means. Yeah. Asking them why. Why do you want a disc golf yeah. course? Like, what are you hoping to accomplish with it? And then, because uh, then our job becomes, uh, you know, working with them yeah. to help further and clarify that vision and, and sometimes help them understand. Like, sometimes people aren't sure because they, they hear about the sport and they think it's a good idea to have in the community, but they don't really know that much about it. So part of what we find our role is, is to help that client arrive at a vision of what they would like to do and then and part of that is then helping them understand what the possibilities are um, with the land that they've got so that initial assessment usually just involves walking the land walking it you know crossways up and down the perimeters and uh, just 
uh, trying to find out what's there and what are the features uh, and what do you what can you build around and then and then you can sit down and say okay what's possible here yeah let's say I want a Raptors null type course I guess it's can you fit that in with the land but when you now when you get down to holes I don't know you know like I go to some courses and I go that is an unfair hole and maybe it's a level I'm playing at. But when you've got, um, we played at a friend's house, uh, a friend had a tournament and he's got a bench up in Kamloops and he built his own course. Mm. And there's one hole that has a tunnel and a, probably about 50 feet, it goes left. And I'm going, I don't know anybody that can throw 300 feet, but after 50 feet, make a disc turn left. So when you're just building a, a par four and just, you know, an average par four, is there things that make the whole fair but challenging I, and that's a weird question i know but you know there um carrie you asked about the biggest thing we took away from the hauk thing and i yeah. can, can only speak for myself but um the the word that comes to mind and and i and uh well you know what? let's play a fun game chris what's the word i'm gonna say playability yeah replayability yeah it's just stuck in my mind it you know if, if we go back and we look at you know this is i gotta be careful here go back and look at i've been playing disc golf like eight or nine or ten years it's like you know carrie's gonna laugh at me go back oh yeah let's let's go further back Stu, before you were playing the game but um you know it's it, it in my time in the sport everything was pretty well par three courses and the challenge to disc golf in some some degree without pin changes is that I already know 18 of the 54, 6, 46, 72 shots I'm going to throw because I'm going to throw the same disc on that hole every single time. It sort of takes half the game out of your out of your hands. So how do you make it more interesting for replayability? And par fours in particular do that because there's a second shot. And that second shot is never from the same four by eight slab of concrete. And it has different underfooting. And par fives, you even exponentially make a difference because not only is your second, but your third is going to be. So incorporating more than par threes is a very important aspect of course design to make your courses fun and interesting and challenging. But I think it's also important to note that a singular hole on its own island can be absolutely perfect and absolutely unfair depending on who you're talking to and how they play the game. And that's what makes course design so difficult is, is you say, well, this is a really great par four. Great for you, but my kid, no, it's yeah. not a par four for our kid. And I think we ultimately took some flack at Raptors because we have some par fours that are like 300 feet. But they're three. They're par fours for beginners on red pads. That's 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 their par. And yeah, the gold pad might be 600, 700. I think it's almost 800 feet on hole 17, but it's 360 or something on from the red. So it, it's a really difficult thing to do hole by hole. So I think where am I going with this? I'm I'm I guess I'm sort of saying this, but is it because you'll have aspects of par fours that are very very birdieable, you know, and they can also be very difficult other par fours on the course and you kind of create your balance through having multiples of those in a course yeah i'll just and i'll just 
kind of add on to that, um, you know, these are just some of the things that we we talk about. Um, there, there's there's you know, there's a kind of a theme of scoring separation that a lot of people that talk about course design and and evaluating how scores are, and that's kind of you know yes we we look at that as well and you know does does a course separate out skill level so will a higher skilled person naturally over the over the course of playing 18 holes tend to score better than a person maybe with a little bit lower skills and that's part of it um, but i think to stewart's point one of the other i think really important factors is is it different each time for one player um like i think if if we all went out and played uh, the disc golf course and we scored the same thing the same score on every hole I don't think it'd be that fun. And so having as part of the repeat playability is that it, it's, it's on a, you're, you're not, ex, you're not, um, you're not sure what's going to happen even when you go play. And I think, you know, when it was all, when it's all par threes, you're always throwing the same approach to the pin. So it's always the same. And, and I think par fours and fives introduce more variability, even when I go out to play the course. So it doesn't feel like it's exactly the same all the time. And I think that's a really important part of design is, is making it. So when people go back every day, that it's actually a, a, a little bit of a different experience every day. And it's just not the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and so we're pretty, we're pretty keen on, you know, pars and fours and fives as part of the future of the, of the sport, just um, as skill level continues to go up, um, you want to make sure that people are able to go out and use all those skills. Sue talked about the different, you know, different skill levels for, you know, a beginner versus, you know, somebody who's maybe played for a year or five or 10 or 20. Um, there's also so many different creative ways of getting the disc to the basket. And so you can design a really good hole and look at it from, if you're just looking at it from how you play, um, you can look at it and go, oh, this is a really tough hole. And then somebody comes along and steps up and throws a, a forehand. And I mean, we've all experienced this before when you're out in a course and somebody says, I never would have even thought to throw that. And all of a sudden it's an easy hole for somebody else. And with all those combinations of different ways of getting the disc to the basket, um, designing holes um, that challenge that full width is pretty, pretty tough. So you're gonna have some that are maybe a little easier for some players and a little, little tougher. And I think you wanna make sure that you're trying to challenge um, that kind of that full spectrum as best you can. Tough to do in one hole, but looking at over a, over a course, you know, an entire course of 18 holes, you're looking to try to challenge the broad set of skills. When, when you design a course, do you think about, because I think using multiple tee pads is definitely a way of getting variability into a course and replayability and making it more difficult. Is that something you, you look for on holes? Yeah. You know, I, I think it was, it's an interesting um, question because when we started um, thinking and talking about um, designing Raptors Knoll, which has three tee pads for each, for each hole, uh, for most of the holes um, as a society. And there was you know, John Goldthorpe and uh, uh, Wes McIntosh and Michael Van Elberg, the five of us sitting down and, and we were saying, what do we want this to be? And there were really different uh, ideas at the table. You know, I know Stu and I, one of the things that kind of energized us as we were starting to play events in the States and we would come back home and we just didn't have the kinds of courses that would prepare us to play those kind of events down there. And that really challenged us. And so we wanted, we wanted to create something that could really help 
expand the upper end of of the skill level. We had lots of you know smaller nine hole courses, and so there was a lot of passion about creating something that would you know be at the top end in terms of of complexity. But we had other people that had young families, and they wanted to be able to go out and play, you know, with their kids and and friends and spouses who maybe aren't as serious about it. And there were all there were several different ideas and visions and so the challenge for us as a group of five was to how can we create something that where we can have all those different um subsets of people participating in the sport how can we make it as fun as possible for as many of those people and you know multiple tee pads was the way and uh you know you don't want to have a thousand and you know thousand foot hole for somebody who's just learning the game or 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 some young kids that are only going to throw 100 feet they're not going to enjoy that so creating something where they can you know have some success have early success we'll continue to do things when we're successful and you know we we have one hole out there have hole 14 um there's more aces on that hole by beginners i mean that's it, posted all the time but it's amazing when you know smiling faces in there they've only been playing for a little while and they have that opportunity to get an ace on a hole and they do and there is no doubt in my mind that the, those people are hooked for life once they've you know once they've thrown one in from the tee pad and that's just part of creating an overall experience that people of all levels are going to enjoy and giving people those opportunities you guys did a fantastic job with raptors Knoll. i played it for the very first time at the club championships and uh, i can't believe that you you'd only <laughs> you're only 3 hours away and you I, know, played it one, I know i yeah. know and people like newer players that had been down there, they came back like, oh my God, it's so hard. Oh, I ate my lunch. I, I, you're you're going to hate it. It's going to kill you. And I got in there to play my practice round and I was like, this is like amazing. Like this is like being in the States. This is, it tested, I don't throw sidearm, but I threw a freaking sidearm. Like <laughs> it, it tests every shot. And so my question for you guys is, as course designers, and we have this conversation up here as well, where um, there's a course, a new course going in in Kamloops. And, is it is it better to design it at championship level and then pull in the tee pads into the fairway and add the beginner or like the am pads or the second and third pad? Would would you guys like how when you guys say you're looking at 80 acres and they want a championship course, but you have that same situation as Raptors where people are like, but like we know what about the juniors? Do you go to the biggest extent you can and then draw it in? Or do you literally look at some holes and be like, hey, this just needs to be a par three? You know, yes is probably the short answer in terms yeah. of because it makes the biggest footprint on the property is yeah. being the longest T-pad. Yeah. But sometimes uh, there are – there's my favorite hole at Raptors Knoll is a red T-pad hole. Nice. It, it it's not even like a gold hole like which is what i play i just very rarely play the red but two in red in the left position is just such a fantastic par three and it's like a putter or a mid-range yeah like you don't you don't necessarily have to say well this should be a par three it can be a good par four or a great par four and it can also be where your more advanced level players will play the other pads and just change their par mentally for themselves like you know, when you go on UDIS and you see scores that are like minus 24 or, you know, and that's probably a lie, minus 16 or something, that's a pro playing from blues or that's a pro playing from reds because they're using the same course par. But the course par is really relative to the skill level of that was designed for. Okay. 
And I would really, if you have that much space, I think going back to Clive's question earlier too, is well, how do you create that replayability? Having pins that are vastly different, that quite frankly, change the tee shot disc on a par four or change the way if you're going to go to a thumber or a roller or a forehand or a backhand. If you have the space, that is such an important uh, part of it because you don't know what pins in play until you get there. You have to be prepared for all of them. And I would say the, the conversation Chris and I have quite a bit is we'll say to each other, well, that's just a longer version of the same hole. And that's not a very good pin change. You should find a pin that is different. And I think about in Williams Lake, we have a hole, this number 10, that is 500 and, oh, Chris, 50 or 30 feet. It's a par three. It's way down, way downhill, okay? Oh, 525, yeah. Yeah, and then the, the other pin is 400 feet, and it's a way different golf shot. It's just bone straight versus having to send it way out somewhere over the edge, go around a tree, and making it not just a shorter or longer version of the exact same hole is kind of an important thing. I like, so like it. Just move it 30 feet. Move it, like it 70 feet right or left. You know? Yeah, and I think with T-pads, it's the same thing, right? Um, one of the, like, yeah. Yes, sometimes you have a shorter version of the hole, um, but I think where you have an opportunity, especially if you have the space, is creating very different shots so that it's not, you know, that the blue tee pad isn't just a 50 foot shorter version of the exact same hole. I think you're I think you're losing an opportunity there to have much more creativity. You know, we like to play, you know, blues at Raptors sometimes because some of the shots there, a lot of the shots are completely different discs, different shape. And it gives the opportunity to go out there and play blues one day. Like Stu said, red. I think some of the the best like par threes out there are par fours from the reds um and uh and they're like really good level like for high level players thousand rated players they're fantastic par threes um so i think if if you've got the space and the ability is yeah maybe start with your big footprint but then in, incorporate the ideas of having very different types of shots from the different tee pads um where possible it's not always possible um but uh you know you can change one hole from a, a you know a backhand to a forehand hole just by playing around with just a little bit um and i think that's where you then if you move baskets around uh on an occasion and uh, you can play from different tee pads now you have a course that can play like all different kinds of courses it's not the same thing every every time um i think as we as we start to now start to see more money, you know, coming in, municipalities are starting to say, hey, we want this for our community. You know, up until three or four years ago, it was always volunteer work. It was always raising all the money and, you know, and and that's all great. Um, but it does sometimes limit what you're able to do. And I think as we're starting to see municipalities now understand the value of disc golf in the communities and are willing to fund, I think we want to make sure that we're taking full advantage of that those resources and that land that's being offered up and and do as much as we can with it um, um so that you know all levels that are playing it walk off the course with a smile on their face and and have had a fantastic experience that's awesome i love to hear that yeah so you talked about forehand and backhand and i i would argue that the majority of players are right-handed predominantly backhand players so is there I mean, you know, I, I guess there's no written rule, but the amount of forehand to backhand shots on a course, and then 
taking into consideration left-handed players? How does that come into consideration when you're designing a course and the big picture, or do you design the best course for the, the land that you have? I mean, you're always looking for the best course that the land can provide. If somebody can come onto the property and improve your design, then you didn't do your client as good of a job as you know spending the time to try to make it the best. Now, you might argue over whether that design is better than this design and so on and yeah. so forth. I think from a safety perspective that's important to consider is that the majority of players are right-hand, backhand dominance. That will tell you where your greatest safety factors for Aaron shots are. Aside from that, we try as much as possible to make a course as balanced as possible. You know, you hear, oh, that's a lefty course or that's a righty. Man, I can't stand it when I hear that because, first of all, it's not a righty or lefty chorus. It's either a forehand or a backhand or a left to right or a right to left because <laughs> you can't just say it's a lefty or righty chorus because a lefty plays forehand and a righty plays forehand and it's they're basically playing the other side. You know, like it's yeah, not fair, right? Does that yeah. make sense? So yeah, totally. So you can have a course that that favors le left to right moving discs and there's courses that favor right to move and frankly, there's courses that favor overhand. And there's quite a lot of them where you just can throw a thumber at everything. That's a very accurate throw. But I don't know. I, I don't think, you know, Chris, maybe you feel a little bit differently about it. And, you know, being, you know, I don't think we've ever talked about this openly. Like, hey, what do you think? Do we need to be more favorable to right-hand, backhand? I think we think about it from a safety perspective, but I don't think that we necessarily want to provide, let's say, 60% of holes that are more that friendly. No, I, I think, you know, we, we, we go through the designs that we have and we look at the shape, like shot shape. Are they, is it, is it a predominantly, you know, right to left throw? Is it extreme right to left? Is it extreme left to right? And, and then what about straight shots that, you know, the, where the ideal shot is, is dead straight. And, and we definitely go through that and look at, you know, trying to balance that because yeah, more people, you know, as, as younger kids are playing way more of them are more comfortable throwing forehands. You know, you didn't see a lot. It, it, we, the, the, I think the design process uh, maybe five, even only five years ago or five to 10 years ago, um, people thought uh, holes that required the disc to go left to right were harder. So they created more of them. So you go to courses now that were built maybe 10 years ago. And when people tried to make them hard, they made them all left, you know, tried uh, more predominantly left, left to right, because at that time, nobody really threw forehands. And now you have a bunch of people that have been playing ultimate and joining the sport. And you have young kids that for whatever reason, seem to be able to throw forehands the first day they're out there. And all of a sudden the course is really easy for them. And, uh, and so, and then they're not challenged uh, with the other, because at one point that was the tough, you know, that was what made a course tough. I think for the future of the sport, you know, we, we really, we need to look at what's the balance between those different shot shapes. And we have a little chart that we, you know, we, we put together and we take a look at a hole and, and say, well, is this predominantly left and right? And then of course you're talking about different types of throws and it's not that easy of just saying left and right. And you have turnovers and you have, you know, Heiser flips and all these things. Yeah. yeah. Somebody who's can throw high power control 400 dead straight. Some people can't even throw 400 and some people can, when it gets to 400, it's going dead left or dead right because yeah. it's running out of steam. So it's like, it makes it really hard, right? But yeah. that's yeah. kind of what makes it a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, but I think you're looking where, you know, you're looking for balance again, so that when people walk off the course, 
they've all been challenged um, by what the course presents and there's balance there. Yeah, you don't want to have people go, oh, it's, you know, it's a, such a righty course or such a lefty course. Although I've never really heard somebody say, oh, it's such a straight course. <laughs> Although maybe that's the case too. Monday Park. <laughs> so um, I have another question about course designs. I've been playing a long time, but my very first kind of overwhelming experience with OB was at the 2014 Worlds at Blue Lake. And I don't know if either of you guys have played Blue Lake, yeah, but it's like... Dave Feldberg, I don't know, he must have bought out every piece of rope and every uh, home hardware that he could find in the Portland area. It made me scared. And in turn, I played like crap. And now I think I think about it. I'm not afraid to throw out over OB because I know my disc. I'm going to Heiser back or I'm going to, it's going to Anheuser and flip and whatever. But what are your guys' thoughts on creating so much OB? Like, it, like, you know, I, I see some some places, some courses online, you're watching on Joe Maz or whatever, and it's super thick woods along the right-hand side. It's like natural OB, but then they've got an OB rope pulled along it. Like, I, what are your guys' thoughts? Is it something you think about when you're designing a course? Do you use it sparingly? Like anything that we have available to us, it's a tool. And I think it can be used wrong, um, but it also can be used well. If it if it improves the you know the playability, if it improves um, the experience of people playing, then I think it can be a valuable tool. Um, yeah, Carrie, the ones where you're you know in deep woods, and if you're off the fairway, you know twenty or thirty feet, and then there's an OB line there, um, that one doesn't seem to resonate as as much with me because um, you're already being penalized if you miss your shot by you know twenty or thirty feet um, to have. A situation where you're then penalized for the OB and then you're stepping in, you know, your one meter and you're still being penalized again because now you have to get through a bunch of trees because you're off the fairway. That seems to me a, a little bit too much. Um, on the other hand, if you are given a wide open, you know, field and you have no trees or very limited trees and you want to try to make something interesting using some way of creating some hazards or creating some some OB will increase the interest. Um, yeah, people might say, well, then, you, you know, you could just walk away from, you know, it's not a good place for a disc golf course. But I also think that there's ways of, of using all the tools we have and to say, no, we should never have rope OB or yes, we should, you know. Uh, I think we're taking a tool, you know, out of the toolbox that potentially can make something better. And yeah, I mean, I think the sport thrives when it's in trees and when it, there's lots of hazards in the air um, and that allow, you know, the shape, the shot shape that we all adore when we first saw it, a disc changing flight, you know, and um, but that's not always the land that we're given. Yeah. And so I think it's uh, it's a tool and okay. uh, I think we want to use it um, to to make the experience better. And maybe sometimes that's, you know, if you look at the USDGC, they're trying to make the toughest track, you know, possible oh, yeah. there um, with the land that they've got. And it's a challenge. Um, and, but that's not necessarily what's, what would be fun for people that are, you know, have just been playing a year or, you know, that's that, that type of challenge probably wouldn't even be fun for the, the top players in the world to play every week, but every once in a while, it's nice to have a different challenge. Now, the U.S. Open in golf, um, you know, their hazards are on the ground, whether it's six inch deep grass and players complain about it. And yeah, they wouldn't play that golf if that's what it was like every week. But for every once in a while, 
yeah, some of them want to be tested to the very you know nth degree. So I think there's a room for it. And again, it's looking at the broad scope of the sport and trying to use the tools we have to make the experience uh, the best we can. Yeah, I think um, the only thing I'll add to that, I mean, it's all bang on. It's a tool in the toolbox to be able to do what you want to achieve. I would say there's sometimes it's good to use it as long as you're doing it. If it's intentional, I guess is probably a very important part of it. How intentional are we being about this? There's a hole where you might create, uh, if you look at um, hole 18, at uh, one of your favorite courses, Carrie, um, Aspen Grove. Yep. The one I I can't I can't remember if it's East West and what they're named again, to be honest. But there's the one that has the picnic bench in the middle on the knoll. Yep. And they have that circle OB. Yep. To me, that's fantastic. Why? Because it makes me think about what I'm about to throw on that hole, and it scares me enough to scare me into making a mistake <laughs> from a competitive standpoint, right? Yep. And I think that's very good intentional OB is to think about trying to put, get in the player's brain a little bit fairly to say, well, I really don't want to do that. And then they go ahead and do that. And then they make their bogey or their double bogey instead of, you know, scrambling for par from the middle of a fairway on a par three or something like this. Right. Okay. So I think that's, that's important, but I also think it's where Chris and I will talk a lot about where and how, is not necessarily based on the land as much as sitting down and saying, what is the adequate distance this should be from this position in order to force the player into a decision? And so we'll say landing areas. Like, for instance, if, you, if you're if you just punishing short throwers, they're already punished on a long hole by not being able to throw very far. Punish your longer throwers. Make them make a decision. Make them be more accurate. Have your OB taper so that it becomes narrower for the longer thrower. And that can make your course more challenging without making it not fun to play. Okay. Yeah, I think there's a really strong, one of the other things that as I was starting to um, think about designing courses, I'm a bit of a reader. So I went and read um, tons of books from the old, uh, the old famous people who um, at, in the early 1900s were designing co courses, golf courses. And, uh, and one of the, their tenants of those of, of that group was to make the course feel like it's, it's fairly easy to play for a player with less skill um, and make it feel that way, but they don't necessarily score that way. And I think to what Stuart is, is saying, you know, we don't need to create a really narrow landing zone for people that are maybe going to throw 200 feet. But, you know, if you, you taper it or make it narrower so that you have the higher level players that can throw farther have to decide where that balance is between distance and accuracy. And now you're challenging them in a much different way. If disc golf was just, you know, out in a wide open field, Field, um, throwing as far as you can all the time. I don't think we would be seeing the growth of the sport. We can all do that at the local schoolyard and introducing thinking into it and decision-making. And, and I think there's always a decision to be made between distance and accuracy. And uh, I don't think you need to force newer players who are just even trying to learn how discs fl fly into that kind of dilemma. But I think at higher and higher levels, um, we could probably do more of that and see more of that and to, to, yeah, to force people into that, deciding how much risk versus how much reward. I actually, someone said that exact thing to me about Raptors Knoll. 
because I said, you know, when I got there, it didn't scare me. And someone's like, well, because you throw like 280 feet straight down the fairway and you throw again and you putt. He's like, try throwing 400 feet down that same fairway. Try finding that tunnel and landing safe. That's what's yeah. meant to scare. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, I totally see what you're saying. I just had this aha moment about that conversation when you were saying that. It's fun yeah. to try to design those holes on paper. And, <laughs> you know, hole 11 in particular was designed on paper more so than it was designed on on the ground, knowing what the ground looked like, of course, right? But yeah. that's our most littered hole without a bounds. I mean, there you stand there on the tee box, and if you've never played the hole, it looks like there's four. There's probably 200 stakes on that hole, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, there was a creek there at one point, we thought, and it went away, but that added to it and so forth. So, you know, this conversation about artificial OB is such a fascinating one in disc golf. Right now, it's in, I would say, the, the hate stage. <laughs> I think you know? so. But I think it's, you know, when you're talking to people about it, you know, it's asking them, you know, well, what if that was a sidewalk right there? Or what if, what if that was a lake? Or what if that was a whatever? But it's not, but it's not. Well, it kind of <laughs> is because they put the OB there, right? So yeah, there's always, that's the thing that's so fun about design. You know, you, I was listening to Chris talk about this and you go, you know, we don't want to force these short players. And I'm thinking about a hole we design where we are, we do force the player to throw longer than they probably are comfortable doing or, and, but we don't do that on 18 holes. Do it in a one or two. It's almost like teaching them this is the hole you're coming back to because you're like, when I get par on this freaking hole, you know, like <laughs> that's what gets them excited to come it back. It makes you love the game, right? Oh yeah. Well, it gets you frustrated enough to keep going. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Back to that, you know, you think of a lake and, you know, and people love to have lakes and it's a great feature to have available to you when you're designing, but the lake OB is just a, an OB that you don't get your disc back. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, um, <laughs> So I, I think it's, it's again, it's a tool. I don't think it should be overused. And I, and I like Stuart's word that he used, uh, intentional, that it's thought about what's the purpose of, you know, creating uh, an OB uh, that's maybe not, I guess it's not an artificial if it's a sidewalk, but I would, I would say I'd rather have an OB that's away from a sidewalk than having a sidewalk in a community being the OB. Um, yeah. Because I don't think you're, you're really looking at, using OB as a, you know, you're, you're kind of using a safety issue as your OB line. And uh, I think we're starting to, as more and more people are on our courses, safety of those courses is starting to become an increasing issue. And we're hearing more and more, you know, about, about people being hit. I was on a course a little while ago and uh, there were three people hit that day on that one course. And I know one of them and, and you look around and it's just, and yeah, you know, when there was eight people at a time playing out there on a Saturday, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but now when the courses are full, all of a sudden these things are becoming very real. Um, and I've been on a tee pad when somebody got hit and went face first down and it's, it's not, uh, it's not very enjoyable. And you have those images, you really are aware of, trying to minimize uh, as best you can so yeah let's take a full circle back to blue lake for a second you know blue lake a big component as to why all that ob is there is for maintenance and mowing if you don't mow if you don't mow it and you leave it a six foot tall long grass and you throw in there and you can't find it now you're going back to the tee box to re-tee as yeah. a lost disc versus taking penalty and moving on and i think that's an important factor that some some players get mad at but don't quite realize the alternative is significantly worse or the city doesn't have the budget to mow that much hectares of land. 
So yeah. all I realized was I had no no reason to be there at the skill level I was at. I was just yeah, there I, for a good time. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's part of it too, right? It might be a really good test for those top players, you know, where it scares them a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, is it, does it appeal? Does it provide a good experience for, you know, a wide range of, of skill? And that's maybe one that was, I don't know the purpose behind it, what the vision was, but I think it was planned to be a real test for top, top end players. And, and uh, I think it is, um, but yeah, it's, it's maintenance. It's also um, like Stu said, you know, how long does it take them to play? If you have people constantly going in there and looking for their discs and in, on casual rounds, then you have people looking yeah. for 10 minutes for their discs. And so um, you really have to think about what are you, what's the experience you're trying to create? I know one of the things we did um, at Raptors is we have our, you know, we have that long grass too that grows seven feet tall. Um, we think in most places it's far enough away, um, um, partly to prevent those lengthy looks for discs. Yes, we have created some OB, but we bring it in about six or eight feet from the long grass um, because I think we've all, how many times have we heard people say, oh, I went OB three times. I was only two feet out of bounds. So in thinking about that, we thought, well, let's you know keep the OB and the grass separated by a mower width or two. So still most of the that might have been in the long grass, at least they're in the short grass and, and a portion of those um, that do go OB end up being easy to find. So again, it's intention. I like I like that word Stu used. Cool. So if you can let us know, I don't know, um, what projects are you working on currently? Where can we see some more InDesign courses? Yeah, well, we Stuart mentioned already that we um, we just finished the design and I'll say most of the build <laughs> um, in Williams Lake. Uh, we have a course there that's uh, two T-pads for each hole and a couple pin locations for each one. Um, it still has some finishing work yet to do. Um, we, there were some interesting adjustments and innovation that we needed to apply there on very short notice that we can talk about um, later. Um, so that's the one that we've just kind of wrapped up um, right now. We're also working with uh, the, uh, Resort Municipality of Whistler and uh, helping them develop a, a master plan for disc golf uh, for Whistler and looking at the existing course and looking at some additional land, uh, potentially uh, a second course. And so we're not at any sort of design phase at this point, but uh, working, we have a team that we've um, pulled together of an environmental assessment firm, because that's a very important part of, of that project. Um, and al also an architecture firm that does some urban design. And, and uh, so we have a team there that's working with the municipality of Whistler. Um, to help come up with a, with a plan for disc golf. That's exciting. Cool. Uh, yeah, Stu, you want to add some others? Yeah. yeah, I mean, Williams Lake is such a fascinating project from so many different angles. It's, I mean, it, to some degree, it's as groundbreaking as the land lease agreement that got Raptors Knoll started to some, you know, because I had never heard of that and what we did at Williams Lake. Uh, aside from those two, there's an undisclosed location that we've been working on now for almost 18 months um and we just really can't share where that one is i my, even my closest friends don't know we recently did a nine hole starter course at sasquatch mountain uh, resort and they've expressed interest in developing an 18 hole course on that property for next summer so that one's not currently in development but that's just an express interest and we we have ongoing conversations with uh the city of chilliwack that stuff got pretty far down the road and then the all that flooding that we saw in the fraser valley 
it wiped out uh, the property that we were that they were sort of proceeding with some environmental studies on. So that got that project got derailed, but they still have interest in putting together another another course for their for their residents. Um, and I, there's a few there's a few others, but um, I don't think anything that should be in the public record at this point. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah. Whistler's going to be exciting. I that's a fun fun track. I've only I've only played it in tournament, but uh, yeah, what a great place to be putting a disc golf course. It's just great to see the growth. Yeah. Of, of courses popping up you know yeah and i think what's what's being required is changing dramatically um you know Stu talked about in chilliwack they we were just at environmental assessment phase which the design was done um and uh one of the other the, the other course that he mentioned that we're not quite able to announce yet um design is done on that one as well but it's also going through um, some first nations consultation and uh we just got the the draft report for the environmental assessment um, of course in whistler the environmental assessment and first nations consultation again um, a very big part of the planning process and so so the idea, you know, as the municipalities get involved and, and uh, it, uh, it's changing the way we go about getting courses um, and, uh, you know, along the way, we've actually had to de like decide, are we really going to do this like this? Because it is becoming uh, just the request for proposal um, for the Whistler was, I don't know, was, I don't know, 28 or 38 pages long just to, wow. you know, to do the the RFP because there were so many different components to it. And how are we going to address this? And how are we going to do this? And who are we going to work with to do the environmental assessment side? Um, but I think it's all good because, you know, we recognize for so many years, we were saying that, you know, we, you know, even written um, was that, well, there's very low environmental impact um, with disc golf. And uh, that might've been the case if there was only, you know, 30 people a week playing there. Yeah. But now when we've got hundreds of people sometimes playing on a course in a day, there is an environmental impact and uh, it's important. I think a really important thing for the future for us as, as, as a sport to figure out how best to mitigate that and offset some of the, um, the damage that, that can occur. Well, I just going way back, Stu, <laughs> um, the <laughs> one that you yeah, the, the Wanda Fuca course in Victoria. I don't know, yeah. Chris. Yeah, like the. Yep. I remember being there. It was like Thanksgiving weekend on the Saturday or something, and we had like a family of ten ahead of us. There was a group of five ahead of them, a group of eight ahead of them, and Craig and I walked out after five holes. Like you, you couldn't play through because every time you played through, you're up against another group of five plus, and the environmental impact there was profound. Like, yeah. it, it, like people were mad. The course got shut down for reason like it was insane what happened there and so kudos to you guys for making that part of your 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 build out and um looking forward right and looking into the future about the, the growth of the sport i think that's fantastic yeah i think the whistler project is is really cool that way i mean we're we've been learning as we go with some of this as well and making adjustments and it's part of the fun trying to find ways to resolve um issues um and I know the Whistler project is looking for, you know, what are the environmental impacts of, you know, of the build process um, and then also the ongoing maintenance and how do we, if we're noticing um, the things that might be deteriorating, how do we, you know, offset that and how do we mitigate some of those, um, but, you know, building it into the design portion for sure, but also building in guidelines on how do we try to maintain the courses and, and try to reduce the amount of um, damage that can, can happen. And, and I think we can do it. We can do it. Uh, 
you know, there's there's definitely mitigation strategies that can be used to help offset and and prevent some of that. Um, obviously, you know, you're you're not going to prevent everything um, because it is it is a lot of people, you know, walking around either in a forest and or in open areas. Um, but there's a lot of things that we can do to help. Um, mitigate or reduce the amount of, of, of damage that can occur. So, Out of interest, how many municipalities or groups roughly, say, in the last year have contacted you and said, hey, we're looking at building a disc golf course? Well, uh, uh, maybe I'll, I'll maybe not quite answer that, um, but okay. I'll answer it in a little bit of a different way. Um, I've had the opportunity with our relationship with Innova uh, Disc Golf, uh, we've had the opportunity to participate uh, this last year and three, I think it was three years ago, um, at the Parks and Rec um, symposium uh, where part, people from parks and rec uh, departments from all the municipalities or most of the municipalities around the province get together and have a symposium and they have a trade show um, where and so it has been you know helped us put a booth there and where we've had disc golf and had you know Innova this most recent time some InDesign stuff there and I can tell you that the I would say 40 to 50 percent of the people three or four years ago that came through knew very little about disc golf and they were you know they're kind of walking by looking at you you know not making eye contact because you know they didn't <laughs> want you to talk to them and they just kind of look and but the basket was kind of fun and everybody likes to take a disc and throw it into the basket as much as the noise annoyed the people in the booths beside us um, but the difference between three years ago and today uh, when we were at the one in march of this year I didn't, there wasn't a person that came through that didn't know now know about disc golf and what it was. A high percentage of them had played, which was really unusual three or four years ago. Um, at some points in, in, during the day, there were three and four people lined up um, waiting to talk about, you know, either their experiences with the sport or, you know, in their community, what's happening in their community and, and, and a lot of interest. And, and uh, those are all, I think, seeds that whether whether or not it's us that get involved or local clubs or whatever um, it's just been amazing to see you know people that are in parks and rec how different their perspective of the sport is today compared to what it was three or four years ago so anybody listening is this what you guys do full-time like is InDesign paying the bills for you and being sponsored and playing tournaments because people are going to wonder this is mm -hmm. you guys are busy this is not any, like, you know, is this a side gig right now or is this legitimately something that you can see yourself retiring doing? Well, you go ahead, Stu. Retired, so he's way ahead of the game on this one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Chris, and I'm using air quotes here for your listening audience, retired. <laughs> really didn't. Um, I think the first day of his retirement, he was, you know, putting the final touches on the temporary course of the BC Open at Campbell Valley. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, Carrie, I don't know. I, I think so. I think there's, there's definitely opportunity. Now, money doesn't seem to be a problem with municipalities when you get talking to them and they've decided they're going to do this. Like funding, for those out there that are running clubs and thinking funding's your biggest problem to go to the city and get, trust me, it's not funding. Funding is not your biggest hurdle because funding hasn't been an issue for us when it comes to you know, fees for this and fees for that and so forth. Like the project we just finished in Williams Lake was not only did we design it, we built it. We were the general contractor that ended up like hiring the subcontractors and 
organizing all that and traveling up there. And so that's a whole nother avenue, design build, because that keeps you a lot busier. Yeah. But um, I mean, you know, I I own my own business. I have a couple businesses. I, you know, play professionally, but you know, I don't play professionally on the disc golf pro tour or the NT tour. So I'm not making you know, the money I'm making barely covers your cost for the travel throughout the year to go. You, I mean, you go to PEI, you win the MP40 division, and you barely cover the cost of your flight, let alone your food, your lodging, and everything else that goes along yep. with it. So, so it's, it's playing as a hobby, owning your business is not. And then InDesign has, you know, with Chris and I making hopefully the right decisions and learning lots and willing to learn and willing to say, when we don't quite get something right and fixing it and whatever, it, you know, that business has a lot of potential um, as we continue to look for, you know, new clients and clients reach out to us. And, you know, we try to, uh, I would say in British Columbia, we've had a lot of positive feedback and it's not just the Raptors Knoll thing because it was such a highly rated course. Now, uh, yes, that's a great thing to put on your resume and they do recognize that, but some municipalities are really, looking for a trusted local source and we have letters of accreditation from the township of langley and working with chilliwack and now the resort municipality whistler and you know kitimat and williams lake and so you sort of you're building this this reputation and i mean to the point that you guys are even willing to ask us to come on and talk to us for you know over an hour about absolutely it's got lots of potential but it's not what we do full-time yeah, and I'll just I'll just top that off by saying yes, I did retire from my my career job um, at the end of June, and but uh, you know starting starting up the company and and uh, the Williams Lake we've referenced the Williams Lake job a few times because it was definitely um, with the design and build that took a lot of time and and uh, a few other things and still trying to get out and play um, probably both of our playing maybe has suffered a little bit over this last six months with just getting things up and running we also have the university program that uh, down here that um, is taking time and so when you're starting out new things it does take time and and I think already starting to feel a little bit more that I'm I'm starting to feel a little bit more these last few days that I'm actually uh, retired from something so <laughs> But uh, but it's just you know when 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 there's a challenge in front and and you enjoy what you're doing and uh, and again it's kind of like playing is that you know you start and it seems or it seems easy as you're starting and then the more you learn the more you realize the intricacies and and it's like it's like being an athlete the 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 more you play and the higher levels you go it seems like there's always another you know you're always trying to improve and excel um in in playing and i and i think for Stu and i that's part of what makes the the design um piece kind of fun for us because you're you're always trying to take situations and see what you can do to you know to excel and 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 in the end uh you know the reward is standing on hole 18 and and watching people come off with smiles on their faces and spending that you know longer period of time talking about their round than they actually played you you know spent playing their round that's pretty typical of all of us disc golfers um but you know seeing those smiling faces come off and and uh, the good conversations and people are outdoors and you know all the great benefits of, of being outdoors and getting some exercise and um it's just amazing to me to see you know what happened what's happening on courses now where you've got young 
couples and retired couples and um, there's a couple you know ladies that are hanging out you know at the course with their teenage sons and and i think those are our society needs more of those kinds of things and and they're out there and it doesn't cost them anything unless you start buying discs of course um and competing (laughs) but you know there's a a lot of people are are just enjoying the sport for being outdoors and and building relationships, new ones and old ones, um, and existing ones. So, um, I think our sport is only just still at the beginning stages of where it's going to be ten or twenty years ago. I think it just provides so many benefits to a community, and and I think municipalities in particular are just starting to kind of figure that out and. Um, and uh, so I'm still pretty excited about what what's there and whether we, uh, you know, I, I don't maybe necessarily thinking about this as a full time gig anymore, um, but uh, uh, but to be able to do this and and uh, have the business and explore it and and uh, just enjoy all the discussions that we have. And and uh, it's 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 just really enjoyable. Cool. So just to wrap up, we have um, kind of four standard questions we ask all our guests on the show. Sometimes it turns to five or six, depending on the answers (laughs) of the the guests. But for each of you, Stuart, we'll start with you. For for whatever reason, who is your uh, favorite MPO player? Oh, hmm. This is hard. Um, I feel like it changes a lot. I'm going to go with Nate Sexton. I just like... I think I like him more as a person than a player. And to me, that matters more in that case. He's a good, great player, obviously, but uh, I think he's an even better person. Cool. And Chris? I mean, I, I think it, I'm kind of like Stu. It, it changes. Like, it, I don't know if it's just because it's a newer sport. Like, we didn't grow up, you know, with your team. Um, <laughs> and certainly, I have the highest level of respect for, you know, people like Paul Macbeth, who can just continue to be at such a high level um, in any sport for so long. Um, that always uh, is very impressive to me. Um, Calvin Heimberg for me is a guy that just, just that little dry wit and his, his, the way out on the course. And uh, for me, there's an intrigue there with him that is just, uh, I I think entertaining to watch and, and yet that amazing, amazing player. So um, I think those two for kind of different reasons. And what about um, a favorite FPO for whatever reason, we'll start with you, Stuart. That one's easy for me, Kristen Tatar, without a oh. doubt. I've spent some time with her uh, when I was sponsored by Latitude, and, uh, you know, she's just uh, an incredible human and a fantastic player. Nice. I have to agree. Yeah, and I will too. Um, I think the way she manages herself and her image and the way she is out on the course, um, you don't initially think of her when you see her playing as a very driven very focused athlete because she doesn't kind of come off like that but um, but clearly the more you listen to her and the efforts that she puts in um, I think that's pretty impressive for you know the the effort and the time she puts in the commitment to her craft I think is is setting a whole new bar I love it and someone had said that answer before on a previous podcast and I had to give her kudos for being a mother and being away from her family for that long while she does it away from her daughter like Stu, you traveled this year away from your girls and it's hard being away. Like I hate going away for two weeks from my family and my girl's 25. So yeah. I can't imagine being gone three months from, you know, a young child and 
yeah, I, I have to agree with you guys. Yeah. You know, three, four years ago, people would ask you, you know, who do you think is the best player in the world, Paul McBeth or Ricky Wysocki and so forth. And I'm not taking anything away from them, but it's important to remember three or four years ago, I used to, you know, kind of make a, a semi, this is not going to gain me any favor, a lot of people, but um, welcome to meeting me, I guess. <laughs> it was, who's the best player that's willing to live on the road in a van? Yeah. Because that's what disc golf was at that time. It was, they weren't making enough money to even pay for flights. They'd have to drive. They'd break down. Somebody would have to come rescue them. Some people were living in Toyota hybrids. Yep. Now the sport is changing. And you look at a player like Kristen Tatar, who has one world championship to her name. Well, that's because the world championships end up in the United States every year. It's not, yeah. never goes around the world. How many world championships would there be if it was held in Estonia every year uh, for her? So, you know, it's, a, it's, it, you, she's not only a mom that has to travel her daughter's at school age she's european the covid restrictions i mean it's just like the lady had everything stacked against her to not be able to do what she's doing and she just perseveres with the utmost grace yep absolutely well so, said question three it's kind of a uh, if you're just a two-parter what is the best course you have played of course, apart from Raptors and all. Um, <laughs> and what course would you like to play that you haven't played? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for letting us off the hook on the Raptors yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, you know, pieces of courses, but um, I love going down and playing Beaver State Fling. Um, there's something about uh, Milo MacGyver that's just kind of magical for me. Um, it just feels good when you're there. The trees, the, you know, the, the bit of the fairways, the the mix of, of different types of holes and the ability to have two courses there. Um, I think that's kind of a favorite um, place for me. Um, I also like going out and playing, you know, Hillcrest and PEI. And and uh, we had a chance um, to play in Estonia a few years ago and played a couple of really unique courses that maybe we weren't quite used to over here. Um, and I think that's maybe from a design perspective, maybe helped influence us a little bit and what we think about design because the courses there are designed a little differently and, and um, you can just see there's certain emphasis on different things, which, um, uh, which I really enjoyed, so. Bucket list course for you, Chris? Oh, um, Harmony Bends, I think. Um, that, that one, I, uh, I really thought I might get down there this year to play for it, um, play at it, but uh, didn't just didn't work out with travel arrangements and stuff. But I think that's one that I've heard a lot about over the years. It's always been ranked really high. And, uh, and so, of course, you, you want to go see what's, what's out there in terms of the best courses. So um, that's been one of them for sure. Awesome. What about you, Stu? This is such a, this is an even harder question. Um, <laughs> man, all the stuff about design was easy. <laughs> uh, let's say, okay, the, my, my favorite course, I do love Milo. Um, I'm going to have to go with Northwood Black. So um, it's an extremely hard course but I think it's a bit of a masterpiece having played it for the first time this year, many times. Um, yeah. Northwood black is probably my favorite course in terms of bucket list course. I'm going to have to give you more than one. Um, okay. I'm going to, 
I'm going to go with Whistler's Bend because it's so close to me and I still haven't played. You have to play it. Oh my God. So good. Scott Withers is A, going to be mad at me if I didn't mention it. B, going to be mad that I said Nate Sexton is my favorite NBA player. (laughs) Um, So sorry, Scott. The the other, there's two that come to mind. Harmony Benz is one of them for sure. There's the new course that was built with no budget that, the is in Missouri or something that uh oh, they just did the, the the big skins eagles eagles, eagles crossing eagles crossing okay so that yeah. one. and then where they play the Kona Piste open uh in Czech Republic I don't remember the name of the course but I've always thought that is a very interesting course to to want to play and the beast I guess if it is around if you're there, <laughs> there yeah. Yeah. awesome yeah. last question that is you can take one disc out of your bag to play 18 holes with. What would that disc be? One disc round. You're going to say the same disc, Duke? Maybe not. Um, I, I'll go first. V Cobra. Yeah, I knew that's what you were going to pick. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is this is hard, too. Um, I'm going to go with TL. Yeah, good. A little faster. All right. Well, thanks for giving up your time, guys. I appreciate it. And it's nice to meet you for the first time, both Chris and Stu. Yeah. And um, yeah, um, and wish you all the best with your designs and look forward to playing them. And I'm going to admit now, I have never played Raptor Snow. When you come down, Clive, make sure you give us a call and we'll, uh, we'd be, it'd be a privilege for us to give you a tour around after the conversation today. It'd be, that'd be really enjoyable. It might make a, make a special trip down for it. I, Bring I Carrie will. with you. Okay, I I will do, but it might but might not be a privilege for you to actually see me play. Just, you know. <laughs> um, but no, our buddy and I wanted to go down um, next year and actually play the three sets of pads, potentially in one long summer day. Mm-hmm. Um, start with make it door. midweek. Otherwise, like if you're not there at seven in the morning on Saturday, yeah. you're only okay. playing one round. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, again, thanks again. Yeah, it's it's been awesome learning about what goes into building a course and and hearing about your careers. Thank you. And thanks thanks for to sharing. both of you for for reaching out and uh, always fun to talk disc golf. You, thanks. Absolutely. Hey, good uh, luck with the podcast. It's great. This is episode you. five. Keep it yes. going. Yeah, 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 for sure. Thanks uh, so much. So that was our chat with Stu McKissick and Chris Hartman. What were your perspectives, Kerry? Um, you know. I'm excited. I'm excited to have two well-rounded disc golfers in the sport and in the community that know what they're doing, that have taken the time to educate themselves on uh, course design out there, making things happen for communities in British Columbia. It's uh, it's cool. And, it, and it's nice to have that resource. I know them both off the course and they're both great guys. And what they're giving back is I know truly out of passion for the sport. So it, it's cool. I, I was really happy to have this conversation with them. Cool. And, and it was obviously my first time meeting them. And, you know, one thing that amazes me about disc golf is one minute you could be out there playing with someone that smokes weed, has long hair and is out there, you know, taking the sport seriously, but having fun and just doing their thing. And then along comes a professional who plays as well. The, the, the wide variety of people that play this sport is yep. incredible. And, you know, and it shows you, hey, never judge a, you know, a book by its cover or a person by the look. 
No. Uh, and, 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 you know, they, these are two professional people who want to make the sport better. But, yeah, I, I've just, I thought they were, they were very, very, very knowledgeable. I love the part, I, I love the idea of being able to design this, this golf course. And they put a lot of things into perspective for me. You know, the, the idea of safety wasn't one of the first things I would be thinking about when totally a disc golf course you know I think it will come into play but you know that's one of the first things and then the idea of shot shape and replayability and all those things it was great to hear someone educated on the idea of designing a golf course basically put it in language that everybody can understand so I'm yeah very appreciative of that yeah it was I enjoyed chatting with them yeah, they're, they're honestly, they're great guys. So yeah, it was fun to have them say yes and that we could get them fit into the schedule. And I'm excited to see what happens. I'm excited for Whistler, um, Williams Lake. I think I feel a road trip in the spring when, yeah, the, when yeah. the highways are better. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be yeah. fun. There's a brewery right alongside too. So I have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm going to do a shout out for our next episode. So when you listen to this one, our next episode is one where you get to have a voice by asking us questions or maybe you can just give us an opinion on something um, and we can maybe talk about your opinion but on social media on instagram or facebook we'll have posts up there and send us a question send us it by email to flightpass.gg at gmail.com and if we use your question or talk about your opinion we have our own santa claus here in two weeks who will be grabbing something out of his stack and you, you win something if we talk about your question. So look out for that. It's going to be a fun episode and we might even have a phone in aspect as well, where you can phone in live. I but, look forward to it. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I'm sure I'll see you before we record the next episode, Kerry, but it's, it's been fun chatting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to just getting this all out there for, for everybody to to hear. And anyone that gets the chance to play Raptor Zool, I wanted to do this. Yeah. Just keep in mind all the things you heard Chris and Stu talk about yeah. while you're throwing those lines. And, you know, then you'll have some perspective when you start to play other courses that maybe are a little more beige in design and you'll understand where all the conversation came from today so okay well, yeah uh, all right see you soon take care okay take care bye, bye.